Can I say for the 400th time already today, what a gorgeous day it is today. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It is a joy to be gathered with you and glad to see all of you here. Glad to see a couple of faces this morning. I haven't seen in over a year. And, uh, and what a blessing. What a blessing we received together. Now, I want to uh, acknowledge that I'm coming to you today in that same space of, of complexity and humility uh, that, uh, that Pastor Aaron mentioned last week as we speak about the gospel and race. And if you're curious why we're talking about this, we're talking about this because how the people of God relate to each other and how the people of God relate to the world at large are fundamentally important pieces to the gospel message, the good news of Jesus. The gospel is not merely some abstract, high-minded, theological concept about eventually getting ourselves to heaven. Of course, the gospel includes that, but it's so much more. The good news of Jesus helps us navigate the inevitable challenges of how we should demonstrate the love and compassion of a loving and compassionate God to each other and how we often get that assignment wrong. So when we see a world constantly talking about issues of race, the, the gospel response isn't to say, oh, that's, that's secondary, that's a distraction. No, I, I, I believe deeply that the gospel response is to say, God has something to say about how to get those things right. And he also has the only answer to help us when we get those things wrong. And in fact, I believe that the gospel helps us sort out what parts of the public discourse the world gets right. And I think there are aspects of the public discourse that we, the church, would do well to embrace and even learn from. And the gospel helps us to sort out what parts of the public discourse the world gets wrong. And I think there are aspects of the public discourse that, that, that we, the church, would do well to reject or to reframe. So that's what we're going to try to, to do over these, over these weeks, to take a step, just a step, to bring the good news of Jesus to bear in one of many places where it really matters, where we really need it. In response to the idea that the church is being distracted by secondary things when talking about race, British theologian, author, and professor N.T. Wright recently wrote this, All those who believe in Jesus, rescued by his cross and resurrection, and enlivened by his spirit, are part of the new family. This was and is central, not peripheral. The church was the original multicultural project with Jesus as its only point of identity. It was known and was for this reason seen as both attractive and dangerous, as a worship-based, spiritually renewed, multi-ethnic, polychrome, mutually supportive, outward-facing, culturally creative, chastity-celebrating, socially responsible, fictive kinship group, generous to the poor, and courageous in speaking up for the voiceless. That's the family we're striving to become, who I believe God wants us to be. And last week, Pastor Aaron shared about our calling, our responsibility as a mark of Christian living and a part of our journey to pursue and share the shalom of God to weep with those who weep. There is an empathetic responsibility based out of humility that compels us to allow our hearts to break for what breaks the heart of God. And racial injustice and oppression and abuse and bias break the heart of God. So, so whether or not we have directly been impacted by these things, we weep with those who have. We weep with those who weep. To use a biblical and spiritually significant term, we lament. Well, today I'm going to be leaning into our need after our lament to repent as maybe an appropriate next step in our journey through this topic. And this message will admittedly be a, a very personal one. Now, I always tell stories from my life when I preach. That's just my style. But today will be even more so a series of anecdotes from my life, not, not as some sort of group therapy session for Chad, but in an attempt to talk about something as direct as repentance in a way that is accessible without being accusatory. 
I will share my story of very slowly and reluctantly coming to terms with my need to rethink a few big things in the area of race with the hope that you may be able to relate to at least one or maybe a few pieces of my story as a source of conviction, not condemnation, from the Lord as he continues to write your story. Now, I've lived all but two years of my life in Pennsylvania, either in Lancaster County or here in Center County, both bastions of white majoritydom. But I did live for about 18 months in the fourth largest city of this country, Houston, and I experienced some new things in that truly multi-ethnic, multi-racial H-town. Shortly after moving there, I needed to get a haircut, and I saw a sign along the road that said, men's haircut's $10. There we go. I thought, let's do this thing. Scalp shrubbery be gone. So I pulled into the strip mall, and I walked into the barbershop and immediately thought to myself, huh, I'm different from everyone here. For maybe the first time in my life, I was the only white person in the room. And clearly I was not their typical customer. And that haircut experience was really new to me. Uh, You should know that unlike some of our pastoral team, I use neither hand lotion nor Crisco as hair gel. Um, This head of hair has never had any product intentionally put in it. And some of you are thinking, yeah, we can tell that. Well, when I go to the barber, my instructions are, could you please make my hair considerably shorter and make it look like not an accident? Those are low expectations, to be sure. It usually takes 10 minutes or less. And I I may have been imagining things, but it seemed to me that this barber was not accustomed to cutting hair like mine. He wasn't doing the same things in the same order as I was used to. But my new main mincing master, to his great credit, with all of his combing and snipping and combing and snipping, by the end, he did a fine job. My hair was shorter, it looked intentional, and it only cost $10. But I walked out of that barber shop with more than just a nice haircut. I walked away with an understanding in just a moment of what it feels like to be different, to be noticeably different from the rest of the group in a way that I had never experienced before. It was genuinely uncomfortable to me to be the only white person in that barber shop, and I wasn't sure what exactly to do with that. I come to you today speaking about the gospel and race from the vantage point of being almost exclusively in the racial majority throughout my entire life. Many of you have the same story. Some of you do not. But regardless, no matter how you have fit into the racial and and ethnic equation throughout your life, I hope that God has something for each of us to consider in this message about the gospel and race and specifically about repentance today. See, for much of my life, I was quick to claim that in the area of racial prejudice, I had nothing to repent of because I made the simple mistake of oversimplifying something that is inherently is not simple. Here's what I said to myself. I know what racism is. Racism is believing that a particular racial or ethnic group is inherently inferior to another, typically demonstrated by saying certain words and thinking certain hateful thoughts and uh, about that particular group of people. Racism is explicitly and consciously allowing oneself to hate another group of people just because they're different. They have a different skin color or are from a different place. That's racism, and I don't do that. I don't say those things. I don't think those thoughts. I don't have race issues. Check. Done. Moving right along, footloose and fancy free. Nothing to see here. Until God said otherwise. What the Lord has placed on my heart and what I want to do today is to share some reflections on my journey of what I believe to be spirit-led self-discovery, of true self-awareness of my need for repentance and to invite you into a similar journey. I will admittedly and obviously be sharing from the vantage point of a white man communicating to a largely white congregation. 
And the primary point of reference will be the historical and present-day dissonance between white and black folks, between a historically empowered and privileged people group and a historically undervalued and unprivileged people group here in this country. Within that framework, let me be clear in saying that this message is not going to focus at all on areas where black folks specifically and other racial minorities more generally need to acknowledge their sin. Yes, we are all sinners. But in this area, our culpability can vary greatly depending on our racial identity and on our corresponding position. The scriptures put a high burden of responsibility on those with power in any and all contexts. Frankly, black folks have heard from the church since the days of slavery about their need to be submissive and patient and forgiving. Yes, those are Christian values that apply to us all, but I will not be going there today. I want to speak primarily through the grid of race relations to the privileged and to the empowered to encourage all of us who fit that description in one way or another, and I'll allow you to decide with God's help, if that's you at all, to encourage the privileged and the empowered to consider our sin and our need to repent. And I fully understand that racial issues exist much more broadly than just along the black-white color line. Recent violence uh, against Asian Americans has been excruciating to watch, but certainly not new. Some recent reading I've done helped me to understand with much greater clarity the history of oppression over Native American peoples. There's no shortage of, of injustices against Latino populations and against the Jewish people. Where there are people, there are differences, and where there are differences, there is sin. How all of us, whatever our skin color or ethnic heritage may be, interact and treat each other, well, that's part of this tangled web, and all of it is impacted by sin. And that's what we're going to do business with today. A call to repentance through the story of my need for repentance as we invite the Lord to speak to you if there's anything about which you may need to repent. Indeed, God has spoken to me to challenge my simplistic view that somehow none of this applied to me. One of the vehicles that he used to do some very necessary excavation in my soul was a foundational passage for today's message found in 1 John 1. If you're here on the lawn, feel free to turn to 1 John in your Bible or on your, your smartphone if you're watching at home or if you're in the sanctuary you can also just read along on screen. Here's what we read in 1 John 1, and we're going to start in verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now let's hear the intensity of those words from verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. As racial issues have continued to surface all around us, the Lord has used this passage in the context of ongoing cultural conversation to poke holes in that self-deception I believed about myself. As I've listened... And learned, I've come to understand that there is a broad range of less obvious ways that I have indeed sinned in this area of racial injustice and prejudice. 
Because racism is not binary. It is not an either-or scenario. Either you have flagrant and obvious sin issues in the area of race, or you have no sin issues at all. That is a convenient paradigm for us to believe, which allows us to position ourselves in the sin-free zone, of course, outside the need for repentance or change. But like most areas of sin, it's not two clearly defined boxes of yes or no. Jesus poked a lot of holes in that easy way of thinking. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Oh, you think you're pure because you've not committed adultery? You can sin through infidelity with your eyes and your heart. Oh, you think you're an agent of peace because you've not killed someone? Well, you can commit the sin of violence to get somebody with an angry thought or a hateful word. Such is the way of the sinful flesh that is within each of us. And that same nuanced, subtle, slippery slope of sin applies to the issue of race which we can see only if we approach this conversation with the spirit of true humility. Pressing in further in that spirit of 1 John 1 humility, let me read another passage of scripture that will help to set the framework within which we'll then discuss some specific ways where I know I have missed the mark. Listen to these powerful words from Philippians 2. And we'll start right in verse 1. Again, this will be Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Here's what we read. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. When it comes to race, That does not describe my life in Christ over the course of these more than four decades. Not so much by the outward appearances of flagrant racism, which I have largely stayed clear of, but the subtle or possibly more insidious expressions of selfish ambition and vain conceit that I have allowed to take root in my mind and heart as I've observed racial tension all around me. So I'm going to press into some of those particulars and invite you to consider with me if there are some areas where you have deceived yourself and claim to be without sin as well. I invite you to have the courage and the humility to do business with that question today and listen to anything God might want to say to you. So I repent of choosing not to see what I did not wish to see. I repent of choosing not to see what I did not wish to see. This is a huge starting point. As a white man, almost always living and moving in the racial majority, in every aspect of my life, it has been all too easy for me to think that racism is mostly a thing of the past. I don't experience it. I don't see it. I'm not really aware of it. So it must not be here, at least not up north. I mean, maybe still down south, but not here. We're better than that, right? But over time, I have heard anecdote after anecdote after anecdote from people I love and respect, people of color who have shared their experiences in this community of a thousand iterations of bias and discrimination. And frankly, an array of white folks like me looking out for their own interests, but not the interests of others by starting from a posture of tone deafness, a a complete lack of empathy and awareness, a failure to understand that my experience is not universal. Think of it this way. As a person who has lived almost my entire life in Pennsylvania, I suspect that I'm like many of you in that I have never seen a tornado. Never, much to my dismay. As a a fan of the movies The Wizard of Oz and Twister, I I have never had the harrowing privilege of observing an actual real-life tornado. Now, I could conclude from this that tornadoes do not actually exist. 
They're not a real thing. Maybe years ago in the era of Judy Garland or Helen Hunt, but not now. I have never once in my life seen a real-life tornado. Now, I know that there are people from Kansas who insist that tornadoes are real. But honestly, I just think they're probably imagining things sometimes or exaggerating things sometimes. I mean, we all see windstorms. But come on, that's not that big of a deal. A tornado? I, I don't think so. Look, I actually met a guy. Well, okay, I saw a Facebook post from a guy who's lived his entire life in Kansas. And he has never seen a tornado. And all of my Pennsylvania friends have been sharing this post back and forth with each other saying, look, see, I told you tornadoes aren't real. And this one Kansas guy agrees with us. Tornadoes are a thing of the past. All of the Pennsylvanians and that one Kansas guy agree. I know that the vast majority of, of Kansans say that they have seen and, and they have experienced tornadoes. Some of them say that their property has been destroyed. One of them even shared a video of a Winnebago flying past your second-story window. But I bet if we had the full context, the Winnebago driver probably built a ramp to launch himself and fly by the window. So it was really his fault that the Winnebago was airborne at all. So in conclusion, tornadoes are not real. I hope you get the illustration. I'm not being terribly subtle here. It takes some work and a committed refusal to give any credence to the experience of so many of our sisters and brothers of every racial minority group to remain committed to the idea that racism is basically not a thing. Or it's a thing, but it's mostly elsewhere. And it's probably usually blown out of proportion. See, from the position of power and privilege, I have the ability to believe that illusion. And that is my instinctual impulse. But Philippians 2 invites me in that spirit of tenderness and compassion to reject that lie. So I repent of choosing not to see what I did not want to see. As there's something in the conversation about race where you too have chosen not to see what you'd rather not. May our commitment to looking through the gospel lens allow us to see what we'd rather not, but ultimately need to. I also repent of dismissing and defending my privilege. Now, I've used the word privilege several times already today. I suspect some of you have, have maybe hypervented a little bit every time I've said it. White privilege is one of those trigger terms that, that's been so hard for me to hear. It's one of the things I didn't want to see, but we've got to press into this. The notion of privilege is disturbing to many of us because I think we misunderstand what it means. It means that some of us have advantages over others of us because of inherited traits or external circumstances. And let me give you a relatively harmless example before we dig more deeply into the racial implications. Once upon a time, I was a manager for the Penn State women's volleyball team. On some random Friday night match, one of the line judges, the official on the corner with the flag calling the ball in and out, well, he didn't show up for the match. And so the coaching staff looked down at the bench. They saw me sitting at the end and said, hey, Chad, you want to be the line judge tonight? I said, sure. And the rest is history. That was the first step in my journey to being a volleyball official. I've line judged and officiated hundreds of matches since. In 2007, I was invited by the NCAA to line judge the Women's Collegiate Final Four in Sacramento. The, the NCAA flew me to California, put me up in a nice hotel for several nights, paid me handsomely, and even fed me a delicious creamy shrimp pasta dish that I should not have eaten immediately before the biggest match of my life. Gastrointestinal hijinks notwithstanding, I had the privilege 
of being part of the officiating crew for a national semifinal match in front of 15,000-plus fans on national television. It was a big deal. And I thought that made me a big deal. I really thought I was pretty dead gum important. I assumed that I was asked to be part of that crew exclusively, exclusively because of my unique talent and my remarkable work ethic. Why else would they ask me and not any of the thousands of other line judges who could have been there instead? But that was relatively early in my officiating career when I had barely officiated outside of Center County. Over the nearly 15 years since that time, I have officiated in many states for some other big matches and, and, and for some of the rinkiest, dinkiest matches in little, tiny little backwater gyms in, in rural upper Slobovia. And I've come to realize that I'm not nearly as special as I once thought I was. I have seen line judges who are every bit as good as I am, many of them better than I am, many of them working harder at their craft than I ever have, who have never had, and will likely, likely never have some of the remarkable experiences that I have had. Why? Because they did not have the privilege of doing their work in one of the most well-known, highest visibil visibility volleyball venues in the country, Penn State's crusty old rec hall. Penn State is the only university east of California to have won both men's and, and women's collegiate volleyball national championships. And I happen to have started my officiating career in that spot, working with the best officials in the country, frankly, in the world, and being seen by all of the key influencers in collegiate volleyball from day one. I am the undeniable recipient of line judge privilege having advanced up the ladder as a volleyball official because of something that I did not earn or achieve, but simply because of who I was and where I happened to be. I don't say any of that apologetically, because having stumbled upon unearned success is no fault of my own. Where this would become problematic is if I were to think of myself more highly than I ought, as I am always naturally inclined to do. To think of myself as a big shot, and therefore give myself credit for that which is merely a product of my situation. I believe I'm a good line judge, and I believe that I've worked hard to develop and maintain my skills, but I cannot honestly believe anymore that my position and status is strictly a reflection of my doing. Again, I'm confident you can follow the analogy here. Friends, though resistant to this idea for years, I believe now that white privilege is absolutely real. Study after study demonstrate in the simplest ways that there are built-in advantages that come with being white in this society. One famous study submitted two job applications that were identical in every way, except that the name on one application was a, a stereotypical white-sounding name, and the name on the other application was a stereotypical black-sounding name. And time and again, the white-sounding name was advanced through the application process, and the black-sounding name was denied. These kinds of undeniable privileges are part of American life. Now, the reason why we so often recoil from acknowledging this reality is because we believe that affirming white privilege requires us to embrace certain alternative lies. So let me be clear in what I'm not saying today, because I don't believe this is what God thinks. I'm not saying that being white is wrong or a problem. The scriptures could not be clear that God does not show favoritism. Romans 2.11 says, For God does not show favoritism. Peter said to Cornelius in Acts 10, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. The idea that white skin is a problem is as much of a lie as the idea that black skin or brown skin is a problem. That is not God's view of humanity. I'm also not saying that having privilege is a sin. 
we're not responsible for the implications of that which we're born into. Having, having privilege is no more my fault than, than having these blue eyes or fully functional elbows. It's my reality that I inherited. The fault, the problem, the sin is when I believe that I'm entitled to that privilege and hang on to it as if it is my birthright, as if I'm entitled to the advantages that come my way, as if I have earned everything that is mine simply because of who I am. And therein lies the need for repentance related to privilege. When I deny it or when I cling tightly to it, I'm ignoring the basic ethical demands of Philippians 2 and frankly a hundred other scriptures which call me to generosity, open-handedness, others-mindedness. In the words of Paul, rejecting selfish ambition and vain conceit, valuing others above myself, not looking to my interests but instead to the interests of others. Now, let's be clear that race is not the only cause of privilege that exists in our world. Malcolm Gladwell's amazing book, Outliers, offers a fascinating account of the random and arbitrary ways that we get grouped into advantaged or disadvantaged categories. Among the examples he shares, I remember specifically the oddity that among professional ice hockey players, the best of the best are almost all born within a certain three-month window of the year. (laughs) What is that about? Well, Gladwell discovered that the age cutoff for Canadian junior-level ice hockey starts at the beginning of those months. So the ice hockey players born immediately thereafter are typically physically bigger than their slightly younger peers, therefore more likely to be selected for elite traveling teams, therefore more likely to receive better coaching and strong competition, therefore immediately positioned to travel up the pecking order as better trained, better prepared, better skilled players who eventually make their way into the NHL at a disproportionately higher frequency than those who are born at the end of that calendar year. Yes, your birth month can provide privilege in certain contexts. For sure, there's privilege that comes with wealth, which means that most of us living in the richest nation in the history of the world are the recipients of that privilege. In fact, one could make a reasonable argument that that poor folks, white and black and brown, have more in common with each other than they do with rich folks of the same race. Interestingly, the final thrust of Martin Luther King Jr.'s work before his assassination in that treacherous year of 1968 that Pastor Aaron mentioned last week, his final work was a poor people's campaign that really brought together poor folks from across racial and ethical lines, and excuse me, racial and ethnic lines. Dr. King, understanding the centrality of the issue of wealth to the interconnected issue of race, said this, it's all right to tell a man to lift himself by his own bootstraps, but it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. For sure, race is not the only demarcation of privilege. But the historical and statistical reality, even if we want to lean into rich privilege as equally instructive as white privilege, is that black folks and Hispanic folks in this country are more likely to be poor than white folks. So these forms of privilege get all entangled, all of it allowing a middle-class white guy like me to sit in my lovely small-town home in considerable comfort and ease and fail to have the empathy and the compassion for those many folks whose situation is infinitely more difficult than mine simply because they were not granted the same privileges that I was. The myth of meritocracy, the idea that we live in a world where merit is the chief driving force, the notion that everything we have, we have because we've earned it, the myth of meritocracy is deeply embedded into the fabric of the American ethos. It is hard to let go of the delusion that all we have, we have earned. But if there's one group of people who should readily reject the notion of meritocracy, 
And as Christians, our entire faith is predicated on the knowledge that we do not have what we deserve. As we see in one of the most profound summaries of the gospel in Ephesians 2, we are the recipients of grace through the saving love of Jesus, a gift of God that extricates us from the consequences of our sin, not of ourselves, so that we might not boast. But no matter that my privilege ought to predispose me to be at the front of the line to acknowledge my privilege and to relinquish my claims to, to, to the stuff that I have, to that which is mine, to, to my stuff, to my status, to my rights, I repent of the fact that my heart's desire is to reject the mere idea of white privilege and other forms of my privilege and to defend my possession of all that I have as if I and I alone have earned it. Is there something in the conversation around race where you too have chosen to dismiss some form of privilege that is yours or clung tightly to the advantages that you have? May leaning into the value system of the gospel allow us to acknowledge our privilege and leverage that privilege for the interests of others in the spirit of Jesus. I want to begin to close this message by, by sharing one final anecdote that has grabbed my soul just in the past few weeks. Over 14 years ago, I was driving from State College to Minnesota on Super Bowl Sunday to attend the on-campus portion of my seminary classes. On about hour 13 of my time on Interstate 90, I was pulled over for speeding. This was not my first time. Although it's been a number of woods, somebody find some wood to knock on for me. Though it's been a number of years, younger Chad, he got a lot of speeding tickets. On this occasion, after the original explanation of my offense, the police officer was, was back in his car for a long period of time, longer than it should take to write up the ticket. And I knew how long it should take from extensive previous experience. So I made the mistake of looking in my rearview mirror and when I saw the officer look forward at me, I shrugged my shoulders, trying to communicate, is everything okay? At that point, the Wisconsin State Trooper came sprinting up toward the car and told me to get out of my car immediately. And I was like, oh, okay, what's the problem? Get out of the car now. Can I get my coat? No, get out of the car now. I remember it was Super Bowl Sunday in Wisconsin. It was roughly negative 11 degrees. Okay, I'll get out of the car. Put your hands behind your back. Behind my, what's going on? Put your hand behind, your hands behind your back. Okay. So I was handcuffed behind the back, shoved into the backseat of a Wisconsin State Trooper's car. And I can assure you that sitting in a car while being handcuffed is an agonizing physical contortion. And as we drove down I-90 away from my car and away from my coat, I asked from the back seat if he could explain to me what was going on. Now, he was not exactly chatty Cathy, but he explained that I was speeding, that I had an expired driver's license and could no longer legally drive my car, and that I had been belligerent by shrugging and trying to hurry him along. What alternate universe had I entered? I knew I was speeding, but I had no idea that my license was expired. We had moved, and I suppose the reminder letter had not been forwarded to our new address. I was most certainly not trying to be belligerent, but just trying to see if he needed something else from me. But here I was, handcuffed in the back of a Wisconsin state trooper's car, driving to who knows where, while trying to get to my systematic theology two class at seminary the next morning. I asked the officer what I was supposed to do, hours from anybody that I knew, without my car, without my coat, years before I had a cell phone. And his response very succinctly was, you're an adult, figure it out. Okay, then. That was the end of our conversation. 
He pulled into a rest stop five miles down the road, handed me my extremely bulky pile of tickets, and drove away. I won't bore you with the remaining details of how I managed to figure things out because, you know, I was an adult. But I can tell you that I was the only student in that Systematic Theology 2 class who had been handcuffed on the way to seminary. And why am I telling you this story? Because this event happened 14 years ago. It's a story that I've told often whenever conversation meanders to funny road trip stories or awkward misinterpreted gesture stories. But it wasn't until a few weeks ago that I realized that I had been lying to myself for years. See, for years, as we have been wrestling as a society with a complicated interaction between the black community and law enforcement, I've often thought to myself, it seems to me that the easy solution is that if folks just followed the law, things wouldn't turn south. Things wouldn't end up badly. We wouldn't have tragedy after tragedy. I just can't understand why these folks get themselves mixed up in these situations. As a wise and righteous person like myself, that's just... Nothing like that has ever happened to me. And then I realized like three weeks ago, wait, yes, part of this painful situation our society is discussing over and over again had absolutely happened to me. I have been in a situation where I broke multiple laws. I did. There's no debate about that. And after breaking those laws, I was misunderstood as being belligerent to the arresting officer. I did break the laws. He did think I was being uncooperative. And the situation did take a turn for the worse in that murky space of confusion and angst. Yet, as much as the situation started like so many public stories we've seen, nothing about my experience ended the same and none of it felt the same as what I hear and read and see from so many folks who don't look like me. At no point, at no point, during those probably 30 minutes or so, did the thought even cross my mind that this could end tragically, that this could end with anything other than my irritation, inconvenience, and eventually a great sermon illustration to share. It never crossed my mind that I was in danger or that I should be afraid or that I needed to be respectful in a very specific way. It never crossed my mind that I could die. And when I spoke to a number of people of color over the past several weeks in preparation for this message, I heard story after story of things that I don't ever experience. Purses clutched tightly by strangers walking by them. Security guards mysteriously appearing out of nowhere to follow them around in a store. A genuine fear whenever interacting with law enforcement from strong, capable, intelligent men and women. As Pastor Aaron mentioned last week, many of my friends referenced the conversation that they have, particularly with their sons, that I will never have with my son. I will never sit him down and say, Caleb, I want you to memorize these important 10 things because I want you to come home tonight alive. As I consider how fundamentally different a scenario like my Wisconsin handcuffing is from the experience of so many people of color, as I consider hard things that I will never feel or say or think, it breaks my heart that I am still so slow to see what I don't want to see. Still so slow to acknowledge the privilege that is mine and still so slow to let go of that privilege. It breaks my heart that I'm still so slow to let go of my selfish ambition and vain conceit. So slow to embrace the humility required to see the pain of others. So slow to look out for the needs and interests of others ahead of my own. And for this and so much more, I, I repent. In fact, maybe one final statement of repentance which summarizes much of my lifelong journey is that I repent of being satisfied with simplistic answers 
to complicated questions. Indeed, I remain a work in progress because these are complicated and thorny issues. The first draft of this message was a lot longer, covering several other areas where I needed to repent. Upon the advisement of several listeners to that first draft, the consensus was that I ought to keep this message under three hours. So I painfully realize that I didn't even mention many other important questions. For instance, what is the gospel response to Black Lives Matter? And what is the gospel response to police brutality? And what is the gospel response to ideas like implicit bias and colorblindness and systemic racism? These conversations require humble reflection and earnest listening and deep compassion to find the heart of Jesus in these hard places. But he is surely there desiring to walk with us and guide us, would we have the grace and patience to wait for him there, not to settle quickly on neat and tidy answers to inherently complex questions? And my intent today was not to presume to resolve any or, or all, certainly all of the tensions, but to invite you, if God so leads, to take another step in the journey of healing and, and reconciliation that is the gospel journey that begins in your heart and in mine. Church, there are those who are different than you and me, who look different than you and me, whose stories and experiences are vastly different than yours and mine. If we can acknowledge the fact that many people are hurting all around us and that the church, people like you and me, has been part of the cause of some of that pain, maybe because of our resistance to acknowledge the reality of that pain or our insistence on clinging to our privilege and our status and our positions of power. If we can repent of the ways that we have encountered others in a posture that has not reflected Philippians 2, Christian living. Well, 1 John 1 says this word of great encouragement. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I'm not here to prescribe your particular need for repentance. I hope that some of my personal reflection today has given you the context, maybe the vocabulary, to better understand and acknowledge places where you have missed the mark in areas of, of racial understanding and compassion. I would welcome you to enter today with me into that space, humbly, in a spirit of repentance. If before the Lord you earnestly believe that there is no sin in your life related to differences, racial or otherwise, that's between you and God. But I will suggest that each and every one of us need to repent to confess our sins in some area. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this may feel like a hard and heavy message to receive, especially if we think that repentance is the end game. Last week we heard that the prayer of lament is not the final prayer. Well, the prayer of repentance is not the final prayer either. The good news of Jesus is that repent repentance is the prerequisite for healing and freedom and justice and grace. And if that feels like a heavy place, be assured that it is out of this place where Jesus does some of his most life-giving work. The practice of communion is the perfect way to enter into that spirit of repentance, to turn from the ways of our broken flesh, to receive the forgiveness for our sins that comes from he who is faithful and just. Consider these words from Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knew a little something about the issue of race in the church, ultimately dying in a Nazi concentration camp after demonstrating great courage to resist the power and privilege of one of the most nefarious and oppressive regimes this world has ever seen. Here's what Bonhoeffer wrote about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. I'm not interested in that cheap grace. 
In these next few minutes, Pastor Aaron and Amy will lead us through communion as we invite the the Holy Spirit to stir in each of our hearts to clarify where we need to repent, how we need to acknowledge and confess where we've not put the interests of others above our own. Those of a different race or a different nationality or a different socioeconomic class or a different level of education or a different theological position. We can confess these things and then we can receive the costly grace of Jesus living and incarnate and we can be made right be made whole, be made righteous by the work of redemption and restoration and healing and reconciliation that Jesus did for the whole world, for you and for me. And we can endeavor to better reflect his heart, his love, his tenderness and compassion for all those around us, to bring the shalom of God to all of God's beloved children of every race and nation and tongue and tribe for our joy and for his glory. Join me as we pray. Lord, we come this morning processing a a weighty message about repentance. There is potentially a heaviness in, in considering these things because we can't repent without thinking about sin. But Lord, as we come to that place, as we open ourselves up to the to the whisper of your spirit in our lives, would you would you allow us to hear whatever we need to hear today? And if those things are directly connected to the discussion of the message, wonderful. If it's something else that you would stir in us to say, you need to repent here. Lord, we want to hear those words from you. Lord, I invite your, your spirit to soften each of our hearts that we might walk readily into that place of repentance, knowing that it's there that you will meet us. It's there that you will make us whole, that you will be faithful and just, that you will forgive our sins and that you will restore us to the righteousness that we have in Christ. So we thank you for this opportunity to gather, to worship, to prepare our hearts for the work that you do here, even in these final minutes. Most of all, we thank you for the costly grace that is ours because of the love and the blood of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.